This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. I am, of course, Gwen Cooper, and delighted, as always, to be here with you today, and definitely in a better frame of mind than I was in for last week's episode. Those of you who listened, I, I was a little bit uh, hot under the collar. So I would like to thank all of you for listening. I really did feel a lot better and more clear-headed after getting a chance to unburden myself a little bit. So many thanks to you for listening. And many thanks also to everybody who wrote or commented uh, to offer your moral support or your actual support. Um, And just to kind of tie that off, and then we're going to stop talking about that for the duration of this episode and for the next couple of weeks. Um So I have decided on a next course of action. And for those of you who are not familiar, not sure what we're talking about, um, Homer's Odyssey was pulled out of print a few months ago. Random House, the publisher, just stopped printing new copies or making new copies available for really no discernible reason because the book continues to sell. Um, I was hoping if they just simply, you know, it's it's been more than a decade and maybe they just don't want – and the editorial team that took it on is no longer there, so blah, 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 blah. I, you know, had hopes that maybe they would revert the rights back to me so that I could self-publish a new edition, uh, but that has not happened either. So uh, the next step from here is I'm going to send a letter to – so the agent who represented Homer's Odyssey retired. Uh, somebody else at her agency kind of inherited the Homer's Odyssey account. So he's not really my agent, but he is the agent for the book. And we have a cordial enough relationship. Um, you know, we we exchange pleasantries and uh, a few times a year and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm going to let him know uh, in I'm going to let him know this week that two weeks from Wednesday, from this Wednesday, I am going to be launching a Save Homer petition and letter writing campaign, and I'm going to try to get people to sign a petition and to send emails to Random House, uh, letting them know that we would like the book to remain in print. And that so that is the next step for those of you who were who were offering your support. Um, and and I'm going to move on conversationally. For now, because I I do not want the entire I don't want this to be you know <laughs> curl up with with a cat tail and talk about Homer's Odyssey with Gwen Cooper. Although we can certainly discuss other aspects of Homer's Odyssey. Um, and if, if you have any questions or if there's anything you would like to know about the book, which I guess is a good segue into letting you know that later on in the episode I will also be answering a reader question, and it is not about Homer's Odyssey. Do not worry. 
but if you guys have, you know, reader questions, if, if there's anything you would like to know, if you would like me to answer your question on the air, please head on over to GwenCooper.com. That's my website. Uh, there's a contact form there that you can use to send me an email. I always respond personally to every email that I get through that contact form. There's also a comment page for the pod. Well, there's a page for the podcast and there's a comment section at the bottom. So you can leave comments there with any questions that you may have. And I will do my best to respond either in the comment section or on a podcast. And speaking of the contact form on my website, I recently discovered, I did a little digging. Uh, so that contact form or, or my website in general, GwenCooper.com, is about as old as Homer's Odyssey. I launched the site a few months before Homer's Odyssey came out. And the contact form was there. Obviously, I, I hoped that that someday people might read the book and, and want to reach out to me. And they did. And I was kind of going back through things over the last week and realized that I have I have personally responded to more than 25,000 reader emails since Homer's Odyssey came out. If you sent me an email and I did not respond to it, I am really very sorry. I, you know, and and... 25,000 is is certainly a a large number although obviously there are authors who have gotten way more emails even than that um but you know I'm always mindful of the fact that on the one hand when you're dealing with such large numbers it is almost inevitable that there are going to be errors and oversights. You go to answer an email and then you hit the delete button by mistake and you and you can't undelete it. And so that message is just gone or you didn't see it when it came in or you saw it when it came in and you make a mental note to yourself because you don't have time right that second to, to respond to it and that you will do so later. And then later you forget all about it, or you remember and it's too late, whatever the case may be. There's always a, a you know, the, the dog is forever eating our homework, so to speak. Um, and so on the one hand, that is inevitable. And and you, you tell yourself, certainly other people will tell you, do not beat yourself up. That is absolutely what I would say if I had a, a friend who came to me or another author who came to me and said what I'm saying now, I would say, well, you know, inevitably, if you're when you're talking about that kind of volume, there are going to be mistakes and life gets in the way and nobody is perfect and so on and so forth. But I am always mindful of the fact that for that one person whose email gets lost in the shuffle, who never gets the response, who who sends something and never hears back, um, you know, for them, it's not 25,000 emails. It's it's one email and they just never heard back from you. And so that that is something I am I always am mindful of. And I, I do realize, by the way, uh, that this is why this is part of the reason why while I'm passionate about animal rescue and, and do everything that I can to support the efforts of rescuers, it is part of the reason why I found the work difficult to do is because you are forever beating yourself up. And, and I know that everybody who works in rescue does this. And the people who continue to do it and who do it for years really are just much, much better people than I am. Uh, because 
we always do that, right? And we're always much more conscious of our mistakes than our accomplishments. But I, I know that people who work in animal rescue, people who work in nonprofit in general, um, you do so much good. And yet you end up beating yourself up over every, every, every situation where you cannot help, every situation where where you cannot save the life, where you cannot find the right home for the cat. We, we, we all... We all tend to do that to ourselves. Um, I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, except to say that I, I speak with people who work in, in rescue. I correspond with them so often. And so many of those 25,000 emails are from people who work in animal rescue or who volunteer with animal rescue groups. And as I'm sure you can imagine, over the course of the past decade plus, there have been so many conversations that I've had. They've gone in so many different directions. But one of those things that I, I hear so frequently is from people who are beating themselves up about, especially in the early days when Homer's Honesty came out. And it was still at a point where most people were not even familiar with the idea of a blind cat. You know, social media has really brought all of us in touch with so many other animal lovers and and people who care for special needs animals. And I have certainly learned a lot more than I knew before I published Homer's Odyssey, uh, just, just from spending time online in so many animal rescue communities. But inevitably, so many of the conversations that I've had with rescuers are, are about the animals who they couldn't save or who they couldn't help or or who they feel they did not do an adequate job for. I definitely heard from people after Homer's Honesty came out about a blind cat they couldn't place or or couldn't help, um, you know, who they did not have the resources for. And it is, of course, always, you know, for me, it is it is always tremendously heartbreaking to hear from people who I who are doing such incredible work, who from my perspective really are legitimate heroes who are doing heroic work and, and so quietly and so under the radar and they're, they're kicking themselves over the things that they didn't do or the, the, the successes that they didn't have instead of celebrating the successes that they did have. Again, I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, except that I do stand in daily awe of people, of, of rescuers and, and people who are actively doing good in the world. And and honestly, one of the things that terrifies me at the thought of Homer's Odyssey going out of print is that I that that people like this will stop finding their way to me. Not even that they necessarily need me, although again, it is it is my absolute privilege in life to to be in a position where I can help with with fundraising or, or with notoriety or make some small contribution to support the tremendous efforts that these people do. Uh, but this really this is the thing that that keeps me going, and I've said this before, but I am in this extraordinarily fortunate position where I get to hear from. A whole lot of different people who are doing incredible things in the world, who are doing incredible good. Um, not every, you know, so many of the people who are doing this good are themselves in a position where they only see 
the worst of people. If you're working for any kind of nonprofit organization, if you are helping abuse children, then you are working with children who who somebody has failed, whose parents have failed them, the system has failed them. Um, very similar with animal rescue. It is not always the case, but it is certainly often the case that if you are working in animal rescue, then the the animals who you are working with come come to your organization because somebody has failed them, because somebody has not taken care of them, because somebody has abused them. And so you are seeing a lot of the worst that is out there. Um, I am in this incredibly, unbelievably, undeservedly fortunate opinion where who I'm hearing from are the rescuers themselves. And so from my perspective, I get to see so much of what's good in people, what is best in people. I, I, I often wish that there was a way to really convey this bird's eye view that I have because, you know, maybe it's everyone likes to think they're living through worse times than the times that have come before. But I feel like there's a lot more hostility out there towards other people, people who might think differently than we do politically or on certain social issues or whatever the case may be. I, I just feel like there's a lot more public hostility than there used to be. And man, you know, if if everyone could see what I get to see, which is the absolute best of people from all sides of the political spectrum, and I see it every day, um, I really, I, I think if if more people knew what I knew, the world would be a better place. And and I at least, you know, selfishly am am glad for my own sake that I do get to see it. And I really hope I I, I just uh, that is one thing that I'm really afraid of losing. Were I to lose Homer's Odyssey would just be that continual renewal of my faith in humanity. Um, because I really do promise you, I promise you there are more good people in the world than bad. And I know I know this for an actual fact, like the way that I know that two plus two equals four, I know that there are more good people than bad people out there in the world and that there is good in so many unexpected and surprising places and and that is something that I never when I first wrote Homer's Odyssey I I never anticipated what I thought of the ways that that writing this book or having the book be successful would improve or change my life this was not something that I had thought about and and yet um it it really has been the greatest part uh, I I say this frequently I I never knew that writing about my cat would end up putting me in touch with so many amazing humans. And speaking of amazing humans, this is probably as good a segue as any as uh, into my 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 Patreon community and thanking the members of my Patreon community for their incredible support of my work and and everything that I do and enabling me to to write and to produce this podcast and to do all of it free of any sponsors or or corporate corporate shilling or anything of that nature. And so again, I, I'm going to continue to thank the members of my Patreon community uh, by name. And if you are a, a, a supporter at the $5 a month level or higher and you do not hear your name, um, I'm most likely going to get to it next week. 
if I get don't get to it next week, and if it turns out I never said your name, or if I said your name but I mispronounced it, please, please, please do email me and let me know uh, because I hate making these mistakes and I absolutely do want you to correct me. And on that note, uh, let me continue to thank my amazing, amazing patrons. We have Catherine Birch, Susan Ann Cadlick, um, Patty, last name withheld, Allison Walls, Julie Garrett, Charles Brackney, Michelle Zarickney, Tamara L. Jacobson, Andrea Digney, Rebecca Lynn, Trisha Yost, Elaine Harcourt, Andrew Kaplan, Suzanne Dunaway, Catherine Larkland, Katie Williams, Julie Burns, Kathy Mancini, Matthew O'Leary, Carol Lofton, Marianne Harding, Lisa Calarese, Christine Sorensen, Maddie Chitwood, Irene Mall, April Gutierrez, Angie Mason, Rosie Ray, Rachel, last name withheld, TJ Murphy, Julie Brandt, Melanie Paradise, Deborah Forsman, Lene Waite, Suzanne Haneke, and Meg Hines. Thank you again for your unbelievable support. I literally could not do what I do without you. And on that note, we are going to take a very short break of about 30 seconds or so. And when we come back, I will be answering this week's reader question. So please sit back, get comfortable, and stick around for more Curl Up With a Cattail. so much for sticking around. This week's reader question comes from reader Laura McCarthy. And Laura wants to know, do you ever get reader's block? Sometimes I desperately want to read something but can't get into any book at all. I was wondering if the same thing happens to you. And if so, what do you do about it? Um, That is a really interesting question. And the short answer, by the way, is yes, absolutely. You know, we writers get questions all the time about writer's block. Um, I've never really suffered from genuine writer's block, although I've definitely gone through periods of time where I feel like everything I'm writing is stupid, or it's not that I can't think of anything to write so much as I just am not motivated to write, which I think is a different thing than writer's block. Um, But I will say that I, yes, I I do know what reader's block is. Um, The same thing has happened to me. Uh, there are times where I I really do want to read something, but I, I, I can't get into any book. I mean, I, I'm sitting there, I'm looking at my show, and I have just a ridiculously large number of books in my house. So when I sit there looking at all my books and I say, ah, oh, but I can't find anything to read, it, it's kind of like you know, that that woman who has like an entire room in her house is her closet standing there and saying, I have nothing to wear. 
Um, and yet I, I really can't, like I have all the books in the world and I still can't find anything to read. Um, I think sometimes what happens is, and this is not just with reading, and I'm sure a lot of you will be able to relate to this, but you get what what's called option fatigue or, or choice fatigue, where you have so many options or so many choices that you you can't settle on anything. Um, you 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 get a little too uptight with with choosing one thing and wondering if maybe you should be choosing something else. Uh, you know, something that's interesting and as as somebody who used to work in marketing, I can tell you that. Um, in market research, they find, for example, that the more different kinds of ketchup there are on the shelf on the shelves at a grocery store, the less likely a consumer is to buy any ketchup at all. And that's because at a certain point, when you have too many choices, it becomes almost impossible to pick one thing. And that, is, of course, for me, by the way, it's just straight up Heinz as far as ketchup goes. And I know they have all these like fancy and new and different kinds and brands. And oh, this one's got truffle in it. Oh, this one's for sensitive stomachs and blah, blah, blah. And uh, man, like I've been eating the same ketchup since I was a little kid. I'm a Heinz girl all the way. But <laughs> did I, was I just talking about how I'm not a corporate shill, by the way? I, I assure you, I am in no way formally or officially affiliated with with the Heinz Corporation um, or with the the family of Heinz products. But anyway, yes, I definitely do get reader fatigue. Um, usually what I find and, and I would actually be interested in hearing from from some of, of you guys, um, what I usually do to combat readers block is I try to find a book that is ridiculously easy to read. And by that, I don't mean that it's a stupid book, like like a Dick and Jane book, or easy to read in terms of skill level. But I have found over the years that some writers, and, and this is true of some writers who write very high-end literary fiction, and also very, you know, um, I don't want to say low end, because I don't really like applying those terms to books. But, you know, th- things that are considered like like a Jackie Collins kind of potboiler, more of a commercial fiction. Uh, but there are some writers who have a way of writing where you you just can't put the book down. And I think I've probably talked about this a little bit. I know I've talked about this. I'm not sure if I have done so on a previous podcast. But for example, um, the Stephanie Meyer, the, the Twilight books, there is nothing that I like about the Twilight books. There's nothing I approve of just in, in terms of entire like gestalt worldview um, relationships. I, I really do not approve of the way they depict relationships. If some guy is coming into your window at night while you're sleeping, I promise you he he is a bunny boiler. He is a stalker. That is a tremendous red flag. There is no circumstance under which that is romantic, and I don't care how it's presented. Um, having said all of that, I will tell you that I read every single Twilight book, and that is because there is just something about the way Stephanie Myers writes that it's it's impossible to put the books down. And that's what I mean by easy to read, where it's almost like the writing is carrying you along of its own momentum 
and you don't even have to do anything. It's it, it just takes you with it. It's almost like the book is reading itself to you um, as opposed to you having to read it. And so when I am in a situation where I have reader's block, that's usually what I tend to not Twilight per se, although, again, I did read all of the Twilight books um, and could not put them down. And three out of four of them I read specifically to overcome a case of reader's block. The first one I read, I was flying back from Russia. This was a long time ago. This is actually in 2009. And I have a funny story to tell along with that. Um, But Lawrence and I were flying back from Russia. It was a long flight. And I had brought a book, I think, with me on the trip. But I had finished it for whatever reason. I was looking for a book to read on the plane back and my options at the bookstore in the Russian airport were were very limited. Um, and I ended up through a very short and simple process of elimination. Um, I think literally like one of the books was Proust. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I don't feel like reading Proust on an airplane flying back from a vacation. Um, there were not a lot of options. And so I ended up with with the first Twilight book because it it was the the least of all evils. And I and I could not put it and I knew what it was about going in. I mean, he knew the whole thing and 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 I yet I I could not put it down. I kid you not. I read the entire book over the course of the flight. And you know, and but it's I mean and I do want to emphasize like it doesn't have to be, you know, other books that are like that um, Gone Girl is another example of a book where I, I could not put the book down. And yes, it was the twisty plot, but it was also just the way that the author wrote, the the, the quality of her writing. Um, a lot of times I also find that that mysteries are are good, like a good Agatha Christie. Again, just because she she was such a a compelling writer. And of course, the plot keeps you going because you're dying to figure out who done it. So that's usually how I overcome reader's block is is I really just look for something that is easy to get into, not necessarily in the sense of not being challenging, but just where the writer has that quality of being compulsively readable. And I will say, if you're not sure, if you're like, okay, that's great, but I don't know what book is going to be like that. How do I know before I buy it? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. I, I generally find that any large enough bestseller is probably going to have that quality. It's it's probably ultimately why it ended up being a bestseller, even more than whatever the premise of the book is, even more than the sparkly vampires or the you know ch- children forced to fight to the death in gladiatorial combat in a dystopian future. Or the missing wife and the husband who's on the hook for it, even though he didn't really do it, more even than any aspect of the plot is is going to be this this quality of writing. My, like I said, I generally find that that any big enough bestseller will have that quality, and that's going to be a big part of the reason why the book was such a big bestseller. Um, it is something that I I am envious of sometimes as a writer because I you know of course the writers who do this well make it look so effortless and it probably is effortless for so many of them um, and I don't know that I I have that that same quality as a writer although I would certainly love to have it um, I will say 
that really the greatest compliment that I ever get on my writing is when somebody says to me something to the effect of that it feels very conversational, that reading my book feels like having a conversation with a friend, uh, because that is always the way that I want it to feel, not even so much for sales purposes, because it makes the book more sellable, but just because I love having conversations about animals with other people who also love animals. And so I, I always want to feel, I mean, I do feel actually that that any great reading experience really is a conversation between you and the author. Um, even if it's not a direct conversation, that that ultimately is what it is, that it is your mind meeting the author's mind and, and the two of you having a dialogue together. And so I always want my books to feel like I am talking to the reader and not at them, you know, where I'm not just trying to dump a story on them, but but I'm really trying to engage them in a conversation. And yeah, and and I really I it's something even even if there's nothing else I like about the book, I will always respect and admire that quality in an author. And again, you know, God bless, God bless Stephanie Myers, who, who on three separate occasions has broken me out of reader's block and, and given me some very enjoyable hours. And, and I guess it really does go to show that you don't always have to agree with a book or with an author or with, or with what's being said or the story that's being told to find something to enjoy or, or to have a good time. And yeah, uh, now, now you guys know that, that I've read all of the Twilight books. I've also read all of the Harry Potter books. I only read the first Hunger Games book, though, because, you know, kids killing each other is, I, I think I'm too old for that. I, I think if I were younger, it would bother me less. But there is there is just nothing to me, no matter how how engaging the writing may be, the, just the idea of children fighting to the death is is just a very disturbing idea for me. But I think that's also because I'm now at a point in life where I'm old enough to know a lot of the things, I mean, to really know a lot of the things that you miss when you leave this life too early. But this is now getting into a whole different part of the conversation. So Laura, yes, I do sometimes suffer from reader's block, and that is how I address it. I know that different people have different philosophies on this. I also think, by the way, that no matter how dedicated a reader you may be, there are probably some moments in your life where now is not the time for a book. And this is what uh the this is what Netflix and and Prime and Hulu and all the other delightful streaming services out there are for. For just those moments when you just can't get into a book. You know, maybe it's time to just watch a movie, which is I think what I'm going to go do right now actually. So thanks so much for listening and be sure to check back next week for another all new episode of the podcast. And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cattail with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me. And don't forget to hug your cat today.